just thank you, Lord, for the life that you've given to us. We thank you for the uh, the times and the seasons you've called us into and put us in this world for right now, Lord. And and in light of who you are and in light of, uh, of, of your great plan, Lord, for all, we just place ourselves before you, Lord, and we pray that we could be all that you intend for us to be, Lord. We thank you for the call to follow you, Jesus, and um, and for the uh, process th- that you have to conform us into the image of Jesus, Lord. And, and so we place all that in your hands, Lord, and we pray our hearts could be circumcised, that our minds could be set upon things above and not on things of this earth. We pray that your word could dwell richly in us, Lord, and that, um, and that we would bring honor and pleasure to you, Lord, in our daily lives and uh, in the direction that we're going. And so, Father, we we ask for these things this morning. We know we're praying according to your will. Lord, we lift up Russ and, and the things that he's facing and going through, Lord, um, the decisions to make. We pray that your leading would be clear and that your voice would be heard, Lord, that you would be a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. We lift up Vinny and Jen this morning, Lord, and uh, the, the, the joy and the blessing and also the challenge, Father, that they uh, now face. And we just pray that you would bless them in it, that they would find great joy, Lord, in, um, in the stage of life that they're entering into. And and Lord, we just ask you that this time that we spend in the Word of God now, Lord, would be blessed by you. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come alongside um, this time, that you'd come alongside my speech, Lord, and help me to have a clarity of, of, of word. And, and Lord, in our hearts, that what we hear, Lord, would be what you would have us to hear from you today, Lord, that you would make personal application to each one of us. And and Lord, that um, that it would change us in some way. That our, our perspective, our mind, our heart, Lord, would be be uh, reconfigured. Lord, that we would be um, more of what you'd have for us. So we just thank you, Lord, for this, and pray uh, your blessing to be in this place today. In Jesus' name, <coughs> Amen. 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 So we're in uh, Luke chapter five, Jim. Yes. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. Glad. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It. Uh, it, it is. It's a good reminder, and um, it is. And. Yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise Him. Yes, amen. So pray that this morning uh, what he says to us today is, is as impacting and, uh, and needful for us. So um, Luke chapter 5, as we continue to um, follow Jesus through the um, the gospels not in any um, not in any uh, order terms of what scripture we go through but chronologically in terms of the life of Jesus we're seeking to follow him and uh, I'm finding it very helpful for myself personally to go through and um, and, and to see the order and, and sometimes just the just the time frame of when certain things took place bring entirely different meaning or shed new light on it that I'd never thought of before and so um, and we praise the Lord for, for how he's laid out his word for us. And the Bible says that uh, 
Um, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. And that's the privilege that we have to just search out um, the treasure that he's placed before us in his word. And so uh, I'm going to open just by reading the first 11 verses of chapter 5. It says that it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him <clears throat> to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. <clears throat> and he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, that's Simon Peter, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a drought, or catch. And Simon, answering, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Peter, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the drought of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth you shall catch men. And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all <clears throat> and followed him. Now, it's interesting to consider that at this point in Jesus' ministry, um, really, we're, we're only um, in the weeks or uh, months progression in terms of the time frame from when he first began. And as of yet, he, he's called nobody into any type of a full-time service of him, um, though there are people that are following him. We've seen in, in various passages that we've studied so far, there, there are some that um, he definitely has a name. But there's no one as yet that he is, has called to be with him. There are no apostles at this time or anybody that has a future place of ministry. It's at this point really just Jesus. But we're seeing that the ministry is really gaining steam and uh, there's, there are greater multitudes of people that are following. And it's at this point now that Jesus begins to build the team um, that will ultimately become the apostles. And so uh, the, the, the text that we have before us is kind of the circumstances surrounding the first four of those that will be called full-time. They're, they're not yet given any type of a title. They're not yet appointed to be as apostles. Uh, they're just called to, to follow Jesus fully, and that is to leave their um, respective careers and positions, and, that the, and now these four men are going to follow Jesus uh, full-time. And thus the conditions that, that kind of brought that forward and also the lesson uh, that Jesus wanted to um, burn into their minds uh, at the very beginning of what will be the rest of their lives of following him, first of all, and then serving him uh, secondarily. And so it tells us that the, 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 that the scene was that the multitudes now are so gathered together that it says that the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God. And the idea here is that there was such a spiritual hunger 
that had been generated and, and that was taking place by the Spirit of God uh, moving upon the people in that day, that, that, that now there's so many people there that, um, that, that the multitudes are sh- standing shoulder to shoulder. And no doubt the reason for that is, is very simply that um, you know, one man's voice can only project so far. And so there's so much of a desire to hear what it is that Jesus has to say. The people are just doing everything they can to get as close as they can, just in order that they might hear something that uh, he says. And then we're told that, that he was pressed to the point where he's now standing against the shore of the Lake of Gennesaret. And that uh, is just another name in the Bible that's given for the Sea of Galilee. Um, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, it's also called the Sea of Tiberias within the scriptures. Um, we think when we see this, uh, when we hear about the Sea of Galilee, we think of something like the Mediterranean Sea uh, or the North Sea or something like that. But really, um, this the Sea of Galilee is nothing more than just kind of like a, a medium-sized lake. Uh, if you've ever been to Pennsylvania, Lake Wallenpawpack, um, it's really just a little bit smaller than that. So it's, it's a sizable body of water, but you at any point can see across to the other side, though it be uh, a distance that you probably wouldn't want to try to swim, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but it but it but you get the idea of the uh, of the size of it, and now Jesus is right up against the the shore. <clears throat> of this thing, um, and there's a bit of a problem with the multitudes and people not being able to hear him. And so Jesus' solution to that problem is that he sees a couple of uh, abandoned fishing boats um, that are there, and the fishermen are gone out of them at this point, and it tells us that they're washing their nets. And the reason, obviously, for that would be just to uh, prolong the life of them, to get the, you know, the grime and the seaweed out so that the nets would last longer. And so we see these guys, they've been working all night. Uh, the shift for a fisherman would generally go from evening uh, through the morning. And if any of you are fishermen, then you understand exactly why that is, because that's the time when the fish move from the deeper waters and they come into to, to the shallower waters in order to feed. Uh, you know, that's, that's their time. And then during in the daylight hours, when the sun rises up, uh, they seek the 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 the, uh, the deeper waters um, where there's more protection and um, and 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 all the rest. So they so these fish fishermen now are there. They're on the shore. They're they're washing their nets. And so Jesus sees these two abandoned boats. And so Jesus gets into one of the boats. And it almost seems a little bit presumptuous uh, here at the time because we're told that the fishermen aren't in the boat. So Jesus just gets into one of the boats uh, that are there, and it tells us that this boat belongs. Uh, to Simon Peter. Now, um, interesting thing about um, Simon and Jesus is that they already have a history. And, and although um, Jesus, you know, is newly in the ministry here, Peter hasn't followed him full time, yet this is uh, the, the, at least the third encounter that Jesus has had with Peter already. Uh, the first one was on the second day after Jesus had returned from his 40 days of temptation, right after coming back from that, uh, he was walking, uh, you know, by the Jordan River there. John the Baptist was was in the proximity, baptizing disciples, and uh, and, and that it's John chapter one, and Jesus had the first interaction um, with Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and Philip, and it was there that Jesus first looked at Peter for the first time, and he said to him, "You are Simon, but you shall be Peter." 
or Petras or, or Little Rock. And, and it was the first moment where Jesus kind of um, instituted a calling uh, or a purpose upon Peter's life. And, uh, and we don't really know what happened to Peter from that point, how much he followed Jesus, how close he was and, you know, to him throughout Jesus' back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee for those couple of weeks and all the rest. Uh, but, but, but we do know that Peter at some point went home and that this is home for him. Jesus now in Capernaum uh, on the shores of the Galilee. Um, the second encounter <coughs> that Jesus had with uh, Peter happened just prior to this. And if you were to uh, look up in the verses that just precede chapter 5, the last little segment there of chapter 4, um, you'll see that at, at Jesus spoke in the synagogue in Capernaum on a, on a particular Sabbath. And that following that service, he went to Peter's house for lunch. And so Peter lived in, in, in walking proximity to the synagogue that was there in Capernaum. And, and as Jesus was at his house, we see that Peter, who had a wife and also a live-in uh, mother-in-law at that point, um, that the mother-in-law was sick and that Jesus miraculously healed this woman and he did it in a way that the people that were in the house also had word of it. And so uh, that's the second encounter. Then Jesus leaves Peter's house. And we don't know the time distance between um, you know, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But no doubt it's, it's maybe even the next day or maybe just a couple of days. Uh, probably within the same week. Because you know, we see that Jesus moves around quite a bit in the early days of his ministry. And so what happens now is that Peter goes from there and Peter goes back to work. I mean, he's got a job. We see that he has a business. We see that there's a career. And so though there are multitudes that are listening to the word of God, Peter's not one of them. Peter's not in the multitude. He's not one of the people that's flocking around Jesus at the sea. Peter spent the night working, uh, laboring, toiling, as we're going to see, and that uh, most fruitlessly. But now Jesus enters into this boat of this man who knows Jesus and who is indebted to Jesus at this point. Uh, There was a healing that took place in the whole thing. And it tells us now that Jesus asks Peter to push off just a little ways from the shore so that he can teach the multitude. And in so doing, Jesus does two things. Number one is he creates a little bit of a buffer between himself and the people who at this point he would be able to smell their breath. They were so thronged close to him. And the second thing that this does is that it provides a little bit of natural amplification. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a little rowboat, fishing boat, um, out, out on like a little lake or a little sea, but there's something about the way sound travels over water that is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I remember one time, um, you know, being a teenager, I think I was 18 years old. This was way, way before I gave my life to the Lord, and I was out in a, a canoe on Lake Ontario with a friend of mine, and uh, we were out there, and we were talking about all kinds of things that 18-year-olds talk about um, right off the deck of, of my mother's house, you know, and so uh, we were out We were out quite a ways. You know, we could barely make out the people on the shoreline, but when we came back in, my mother said, I heard every word you said. <laughs> and that was quite incriminating, you know, and all <laughs> at that time, you know. But but I learned that day that wow, you got to be real careful what you say when you're out on the water, you know, <laughs> because sound really does carry. And so Jesus not only creates a buffer between himself and the people, but he also enables more people to hear the words that he's going to say. And then we're told that he took a seat within the boat, uh, which was always the the position of the teacher, the to sit down, and he would then be. Begin to then teach 
uh, the people out of the boat. And so he gives his message, and we're not told what that message was at this point, but, um, but, he, but he gives the message. And when he was finished teaching, he looks at Peter, and he gives to him two commands and a promise. The one command was to thrust out into the deep waters. The second command was then to let down the nets. And then the promise was that it would be for a catch. And and so Jesus, not desiring to be indebted to any man, he's used Peter's boat. He's taken some of Peter's time. Peter's probably exhausted at this point. And Jesus now seeking to uh, just reward Peter for allowing him um, to use the boat in this thing. Now, what Jesus is asking Peter to do at this point makes absolutely no sense to Peter at all. And it doesn't make sense to Peter on three counts. Number one is that during the daytime, uh, fish are not active. That that is just not a, a very productive or efficient time to try to go fishing because you just don't catch fish during the day in that industry. Uh, uh, and Peter would know this full well. Number two is that Jesus asks him to go out into the deep waters. And, uh, and, and, and the deep waters would not um, be a place. The, fish, the fishing would take place nearer to the shore. There was a certain depth uh, that they would measure, that they would know, uh, that the ropes upon the nets were set up for in order to to, to reach, um, not to get snagged at the bottom, but to be near to the bottom so that they would be able to get as many as they could that were there. And so the deep water didn't make sense. And then number three uh, is that the ropes on the nets would only go so deep, and so it just wouldn't even make sense to go into the deep waters and... To, uh, and to let down the nets because they wouldn't get down even close to where the fish would be. And we get the idea that Peter understood the nonsense of this because he kind of argues with Jesus about the sense that it would make. He, he looks at Jesus and his response to this thing is, 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 Lord, we have toiled all night and we know what we're doing here and what you're asking us to do. Um, d- d- just it's, it doesn't make any sense. And so what Peter is thinking to himself as Jesus gives this command, is, Lord, we appreciate that, you know, you want to try to help us out here, but it's not going to (laughs) happen. You have all good intentions and all this, but but it's not going to happen. This is what we do for a living, Jesus. We have a business, and we've, we know fishing. We have been fishing for our whole entire lives. From the time that our parents first took us out on the boat, we, we know how this works. We understand the hours and the industry. We've got some history here. We've got a partnership with another uh, bunch of fishing boats. We've got equipment. We, we know what we're doing. We are, essentially, Peter is saying, the experts as it pertains to this trade, uh, and, 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 you know, what you're saying here, Jesus, essentially would make any fisherman laugh, what you're asking us to do, because it just makes absolutely no sense uh, in this thing. Now, I don't believe for, for even one minute that Peter is an unteachable person. Or that in any sense, Peter is proud uh, or or anything uh, of that nature. Um, But what I do believe is that that Peter is looking at Jesus or thinking about Jesus in this instance um, like Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, Peter's a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. 
And so if Jesus had come to Peter and he said, Peter, when you build a chair, this is the way that you, you, know, you join wood together or make sure things stay secure. I'm sure Peter would have, would have complied immediately and said, yeah, Lord, absolutely. You know, you're a carpenter. Yeah, I, who am I to try to tell you uh, about this thing? And Peter, you know, hey, there's carpenters in this world and we need carpenters. But he would say, Jesus, I'm a fisherman and I know fishing. I know fishing like I know the back of my hand. And what you're saying to me here doesn't make any sense at all. And in this instance, Peter is the expert. Thus, Peter is polite in his compliance to Jesus' request, but he's naturally unexpectant that there's going to be any results from it at all. And we know that he was unexpectant about it because he did what Jesus asked, but he did it very half-heartedly. Jesus said, let down your nets for a catch. And we see that Jesus, Peter, who had now washed the nets and packed it in for the night, not desiring to go through all of that again, he doesn't let down the nets for a catch. But if you'll notice there again in verse 5, it says that he let down the net. He said, I will humor you, Jesus, and I will comply politely with what you want to say, but I'm not expecting much to happen, and thus uh, I will do some of what you said, um, but it isn't worth my effort to do all of what you said. Now, the result of the net being let down is that we're told they enclosed such a great multitude of fish that not only was their boat insufficient to hold the amount of fish that it was, but two boats weren't sufficient to hold the amount of fish uh, that there was. That the net broke and that both ships were so laden with the weight of the fish that were caught that they began to sink. And we don't know um, if they had to throw some fish back or whatever. But now this tells us something about these nets. First of all, the net had to be at least twice the size of the boat. Right? If, if the net can carry a, catch enough fish to fill every vacant spot within that boat to the point where it's sinking, then that had to be a pretty large net. We also know that these boats probably were large enough to hold 12 people. Because later on, we're going to see Jesus in, well, 13, right? Wouldn't it be? We're going to see Jesus in the boat with his disciples, uh, and, and, you know, the boats start to take on water. So these aren't little tiny rowboats or little tiny canoes that they're using. These are boats that are set up for an industrial, you know, type of, uh, of, of fishing operation. And so they're not little boats, and they're not little nets. And one net is enough to fill two boats entirely with fish. And so this is an incredible catch that comes into the thing. And so Peter's response now to seeing this is it says that he was absolutely astonished at what took place. And that he fell down then at the feet of Jesus and he repented. He said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I'm certain that this repentance is not not like a salvation type repentance where he's kind of like acknowledging finally that Jesus is Lord and that he needs to get saved. I don't think that's the idea at all. I think that what Peter is repenting of here is the, the singular sin of doubt an unbelief that he had towards Jesus' word that he should let down the nets because they would catch a fish. He doubted that Jesus was able to do what Jesus promised to do 
in response to Peter's obedience to the command to go out into the deep and let down your nets uh, for a catch. And so Peter repents. And then Jesus, I love his response to Peter. He's not angry. He doesn't rebuke him uh, in the thing. But his response to to, to him um, is, fear not. He says, for from now on, you will catch men. In other words, uh, you're no longer going to fish anymore. That, that you don't have to fear, you, you know, that there's, I'm not done with you, I'm not angry with you. In fact, uh, I have a calling upon your life, and from now on, um, you're going to go along with me uh, in this thing. And then this is the point where Peter, and not only Peter, but also Andrew, his brother, and also James and John, their partners, which were from another family, that at these, this point, all four of these men leave their nets and they leave their jobs, their industry, their business, their families, they leave everything behind and they will now follow uh, Jesus full time. Now, there's an interesting thing here that, um, that you don't pick up if you just read Luke's account, but if you read Matthew's account of this, um, what you see, and this is kind of free, it doesn't necessarily apply to, to, to this study, but, um, but it's interesting and I find quite humorous, is that when you read Matthew's account of this thing, it says that as Peter was by the shore, he saw two men washing their nets and he saw two men mending their nets. And uh, it was Peter and Andrew that were washing their nets. It was James and John that were mending their nets. And, and all I can gather from that is that when Peter did throw the net, he didn't throw his own. He's like, I already washed mine. <laughs> he threw John's net. And that's why, why John's net needed to be mended. You know, so you kind of get the idea of what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of person Peter is in this thing. He's, like, oh, I don't know. He's tired, you know, in the whole thing. And so we see uh, in this text, we see Jesus um, engaging these men um, after teaching a multitude. And we see Jesus doing something. In, in, in their lives and in their midst and, and in their mind uh, that would crystallize for them a picture not only of who he is, uh, but, but the power of his word and what he can do. And so what are the, the lessons or, or the things that this text points out, not just to them, but also to us that I think are important as Jesus continues to call people to follow after himself? A couple things, maybe you want to write them down, uh, six to, to be exact. Um, but number one, and I think this is real important, um, is this, is that Jesus is smarter than you. <laughs> Now, I think that, you know, you would say, well, that's kind of obvious. I don't know if we really needed a Bible study um, to point that out. I think every one of us that's here uh, would agree that Jesus is smarter. And, of course, I think we would admit that uh, technically in a general sense quite readily. But I'm not talking about just in a generic sense um, wherein we would say, you know, if we were to measure our IQ or take the SATs or whatever, that Jesus is smarter. But I think that specifically what the lesson is in this is that in your area of greatest expertise, that is that thing that you know greater than anyone else, that, that, that you is your specialty, that you are talented in, or that you, you know inside and out, like the back of your hand, that, that, that you have just given yourself to, in that area, Jesus is smarter than you. 
Oftentimes we have a tendency to think, well, okay, in spiritual things, uh, I would definitely, you know, trust in Jesus. There's no other, there's no higher place that I can go. Or when it comes to things that are instituted by Jesus, like my family or, uh, you know, service that I would give to him, or as it comes to dealing with people, of course, I, I would admit that Jesus is smarter than me. But that's Jesus stuff. The other part of my life is, is, is that's my career, or that's my job, that's, that's what I do. I'm an auto mechanic, or, uh, you know, or, or I'm, a, I'm a makeup artist, or whatever the, the, a thing is that someone would do. And we would say, but that's my area of expertise. And we would think, well, Jesus does the spiritual things, but he leaves the other things to me. No, not so. See, Jesus is smarter in every area of life, infinitely smarter in whatever you do, whatever you know, whatever the arena, and thus what he is teaching in this passage is that we should avail ourselves to his counsel because he probably has something to say (laughs) and something to give to us. The second uh, thing, and it dovetails with the first, is this, is that we need to beware of the very common tendency that we can have, especially as men, of compartmentalization. And, and that is that we, you know, have certain areas of our life that we think of a certain way and other areas of our life that we think of another way. And so we, we then leave Jesus out uh, of the parts of our lives that we think Jesus doesn't want to be involved in or, or that Jesus uh, wouldn't know enough to be about him. We think, okay, church life is church life, but work is work. And what interest or care does Jesus have in my work? Now, here's the point, is that Jesus doesn't purchase our lives like he has through his blood and through the redemption that we enjoy and then say that I'll be with you on Sundays Or I'll be with you when you're in your house or in your devotional time, but the rest of the time you're on your own. But Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And he doesn't ever leave us. He says, I'm with you. Now, what that means is that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, he's with us. And if he's with us and he's smarter than us, then he's able to help us and he probably has something that he wants to do or something that he wants to say uh, in, in that kind of um, place that we are, no matter what that is. The third thing is, is, is that when we open the door for Jesus to give us instruction or leading in our daily lives in those areas that we think Jesus wants no interest, we are opening the door for the supernatural to occur. I mean, I think of Peter in this instance. He had no idea what was about to take place uh, when, he, when he let out into the deep and then, and then dropped his nets. Uh, and then he saw this, this absolutely incredible, life-changing, once-in-a-lifetime type thing happen uh, in his life. And I wonder what, is, what it is that the Lord might be wanting to do or what he might be willing to do in our lives if we would let him fully in to those areas of our lives where we're reluctant to think that he cares or that he doesn't know about or that he doesn't want to do anything in or he can't do anything in. What supernatural thing could he do in a time that we least expect it if we would simply open the door to be receptive to what it is that he has to say, and then if we were to obey those things um, that he would have to say to us. Now, granted, it very well might be, and probably would be, that if we go back to our job or wherever it is that we go on Monday morning or, or, or the middle of next week, whenever that might be, that, that area that we are expert in, 
And we let Jesus in. We say, Lord, I, I, I pray that today you would do something that you would just direct my path and lead me in such a way that this incredible thing would, and nothing would happen. And probably, you know, that'd be the case for most of us. You know, we would go, go back to work next week and for the next month or even for the next year, and we'd never see anything happen like what happened in this text here where, you know, there, there's some, some clear and obvious miracle that takes place. But here's what absolutely would happen. If each one of us were to say, Lord, today I'm, I'm a phys ed teacher for your glory. And Lord, I, I, you know more about this position than I do. You're more interested in it than I am. And, and you have something that you want to do here in the supernatural realm that I could never even imagine or figure that you would be interested in at all. And that, you know, that could apply to any other thing. And we went into our lives with that kind of a mentality of, of Lord, I am your servant in this place and this is your industry and you want to do something incredible here. What would happen at the very least, if there was no supernatural miracle, is that our perception of what we're doing would very definitely change. And it would go from just being a routine, necessary, but yet undesirable place that we're in, to being a place where it's eternal and impacting and we sense the presence of God in it. And the purpose, the entire purpose and then our pleasure in that purpose would change because we're expect, we understand, Lord, this is where you've got me right now doing, doing this. And what do you want to do in it? And it just changes the entire thing. It changes our whole world. And those things that were once a burden to us become enriching uh, to us. We open the door for the supernatural to occur, even if that supernatural is just something that happens within our lives. The fourth thing that we learn from this passage um, is, is, is important one, and that's this, is that God's ways work because he stands behind his word and he makes them work. It made absolutely no sense at all um, that, that, that this would work if you look at it in the natural. I mean, you would read a thousand fishing manuals and you would never see any time where, where this kind of counsel would be given unless it was just some weird blogger that wanted to make a name for himself and just uh, try to get people to, to try like a fad diet or something like that. You know, you just wouldn't, wouldn't see it at all, ever. And so why does it work in this instance? The reason it works in this instance is because Jesus said to do it. And when Jesus says something... He stands behind what he says, and God makes it work. And that's true in every area of our life in every time. Now, it isn't that we, when we go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do today? Or, or how do you want me to work today? Or tell me something about my industry that I don't know, you know, or whatever. It, it isn't that we hear this audible voice, like God like whispers and he says, Russ, when you, you know, change the, you know, sheets today for this you know, short sheet the bed because, you know, or something. He doesn't do that. It isn't necessarily that we receive. Sometimes he might, you know, whatever. But we do have the word of God revealed to us in scripture. And isn't it true that the word of God flies in the face of all popular sentiment within this world? I mean, the things that God tells us to do and the way that God tells us to live our lives goes completely against the conventional wisdom of the world that we live in. God says that, you know, hey, you should abstain from physical contact until you're married to another person. That's total opposite from the way that the world works. 
And you, you'd say that to someone in the world, and they say, well, how can you ever have a marriage that way? You can't have a marriage that way. Because how do you know who you're getting? How do you know if you're compatible or whatever the case might be? Well, you know why it works? Because God makes it work. And God makes it work because he told us to do it. And when we are obedient to what he says to do, even when it doesn't make sense, he makes his word work because he stands behind his word. When it comes to principles of giving, never makes sense to give. Never makes sense to share. Because I don't know about you, but when you line up the need column with the income column, they don't ever match up. And there's never room or margins in that arena of life, at least for most of us, to give. But yet the Bible tells us that we're to give, and it tells us how we're to give. So why does it work when, when all sense would tell us that it doesn't work? Because he makes it work. That's why. Because when he says something and we respond to what he says in obedience, God backs up what he says by bringing it to pass. The Bible tells us that we're to die to self that we're to put ourselves last, that we're not to uh, elevate ourselves and, and put ourselves forward or up, uh, you know, uh, up above, that we're to stand behind, that we're to esteem others better than ourselves, that we're to take the lowest position and the lowest seat, that we're to be the foot washers in life. Well, you, you just compare that to the counsel of the world. What does the world say? The world says, assert yourself. The world says God helps those who help themselves. The world says, if you want, here's the 77 or 7 habits of highly effective people. And, and, and you look at all of them, and all of them have to do with self-image and putting yourself forward and all that stuff. That's the complete opposite of what God says. God says, die to yourself. Put yourself last. The greatest among you be the servant of all. It flies in the face of everything that the world says. And so when we choose to be obedient to his ways, and we begin to live that kind of life, and there's a genuine humility that marks our personality and not a self-assertion, you think, well, how am I ever going to get anywhere with this kind of life? You know why you're going to get somewhere? It's because God says you're going to get somewhere. And he's able to make it happen, even though it's contrary to the opinions uh, and, and the principles of the world. The Bible talks about and gives us the command that we're not to lie that we're to have an unquenchable honesty and sincerity about ourselves or, and, and about the things in life. And so, you know, you think, well, that, that's just impossible. I mean, there's times in life where you just have to, you know, d- do things or say things in a certain way or fill out a form a certain way, and it, does, it just doesn't make sense that someone could live a successful life if they're ruthlessly honest all the time. But you know why that kind of life works? Because God makes it work. He just, that's just what he does. I remember um, one time as a new Christian, I was working as a carpenter. I was in the union, uh, and we were on a particularly miserable job. And uh, there came a day, it was a Thursday, um, which was midweek service at our church, and I just did not want to go to work. And so I called in sick, but I wasn't sick. And it was the worst day of my life. I would so much rather have been breathing the dust and, you know, because all day long there was just this conviction inside that I lied. And no matter what I did, no matter how I tried to comfort myself, it was just that voice all day long. You lied. You lied. You lied. You lied. You lied. And I go through the whole day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, then I go to church that night and I'm sitting in the worship service and I'm trying to sing the songs and I'm hearing them, you lied. You lied. You lied. You lied. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the Bible study started, and it was, you lied, you lied, you lied. It's, couldn't, couldn't get past that. And so I, I left the church service. I walked out, and I went upstairs to where the church offices were. 
And I dialed nine, and I, I didn't call my foreman. I called the super of the, the, the whole company, second in command for the whole company. And uh, I called him at home, and I had to do a little bit of research to get his number. And I called him at home, and he answered the phone. His name was Steve McGuckin. And he goes, oh, you know, he's one of, you know, whatever. And I said, Steve, this, I told him who I was. And I was like this little tadpole apprentice. So I was nobody in that company. <laughs> and, I, and I said to him, I said, I just have to apologize. I lied to you this morning. I, I wasn't sick. I just didn't want to come to work today. And I was, I was ready for whatever consequences I was going to get. And this was not like, you know, your nice, understanding type of guy, you know. <laughs> and uh, he was the guy that came on the job. And if he saw you with one hand in your pocket, you were going home. You were done. You know, that's the kind of guy. And I said, I told him I lied to him. I said, I wasn't sick. I didn't want to come to work. So I called in today. I just didn't want to be that kind of person. So I, I, I told him I apologize. And I said, do I still have a job? He said, I'll call you in the morning. And he hung up. <laughs> Let you know. That was the idea. You know, and I didn't know when I hung up that phone if I still had a job when I woke up the next morning. But, you know, I didn't care. I felt because it was it was washed. It was like, okay, I don't have to be that kind of person. You know, and and it was a greater a greater freedom to walk in in that honesty, knowing that I I set that right than it was for me to uh, just have had that day off or to just say, I'll never do that again or whatever. He didn't fire me. (laughs) <laughs> and and I had favor with Steve McGuckin for the rest of the time that I was in that company, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not trying to make myself the hero of the story in any way. But here's the point. The point is that whatever it is that Jesus tells us to do, no matter how much it flies in the face of the conventional wisdom of the world that we live in, it works because he makes it work, because he told us to do it. And when we do what he tells us to do, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not, or if we want to or not, we do it because he's the Lord and because he's able to make it work. And that's what he did uh, for Peter in that thing. Number five is, is this, is that partial obedience brings partial blessing. <laughs> okay? Now, again, I pointed out that Jesus said, let down your nets for the catch. And Peter let down his net, and the result of it is that uh, it was a broken net at the end. Peter doubted that Jesus could do this, and thus Peter went in it half-heartedly. And Peter's attitude was this, and this is an attitude that you and I can have from time to time, is this, is that what's the point of going all in for no yield? In other words, why would I give myself completely to something if I, if I don't believe that there's going to be any outcome from it or I'm going to get any good from it. Peter went half in because he expected to get nothing out because, because it was just his own mind, his own mentality. And so the result of his mentality was that he had a partial preparation. He didn't really go in all the way. Now, once he saw the outcome of the thing, he repented. Right? He fell at the feet of Jesus, the knees of Jesus, and he said, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Do you know something? For the rest of Peter's life, he will never repeat this mistake. For the rest of Peter's life, he will never go halfway into something again. I mean, Jesus is going to call him now to become a fisher of men, right? And then when we see Peter in that role of the fisher of men, he never cuts a corner for the rest of his life. 
When he goes into every situation, every scenario, he puts forth what Jesus tells him to put forth. You read Peter's sermons. Every one of them has the name Jesus in the first paragraph, the first breath. Every one of them includes the imperatives of the gospel. Every one of them faithfully and simply declares the God. he is prepared for everything and he sees the full blessing of God in everything. So what's the, what's the point for, for you and I? Is that when we live the kind of life where we're, in, we're expecting the supernatural to occur because we're living in a supernatural faith and we follow a supernatural Lord, then it stands to reason that whatever it is that we're doing, we should do it with all of our heart. That there should be a complete and total obedience to him so that we can see a complete and total blessing as a response uh, of the Lord to our obedience and what he does. And then finally, number six is this, is that the mundane, routine, and earthly things that we're doing today are intended by God to prepare us for the bigger picture purpose things he made us for in the future. Jesus says to Peter after this whole thing is over, he says, fear not, for from now on you will catch men. In other words, Jesus took everything that Peter had learned and understood about how to catch fish in the mundane, routine, earthly thing of catching fish every day of his life, and then Jesus translated that into a spiritual calling that he was placing upon Peter's life, wherein for the rest of his life that he would uh, catch men and win them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that when it comes to catching men or winning people to a salvation uh, in Jesus Christ, the way that God has chosen that that would take place makes absolutely no sense in the mind of a common man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he puts uh, kind of flesh and blood to this concept as he's writing to them um, there, and he's talking about uh, the gospel and, and people getting saved. And I just want you to listen to what Paul says about this. It's chapter 1, verse 17. Paul writes, and he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the, the world, by its wisdom, knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach a Savior that was sinless, that hung on a cross, that bled out and died. And we preach that as the means of bringing men into it. There's no miracle. There's no sign. There's no wisdom. There's no logic. It's a Savior who died and bled. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brothers, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and things which are despised has he chosen, yes, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. And then Paul speaks of his own testimony as he moves on. He says, and I, brethren, now he speaks of himself, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined, that means that he purposed in his heart, he made a promise to himself not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, what the, the, the purpose and point of this is, this passage that Paul speaks of here and the lesson that we're to learn from this is this, is that our message that we give, and especially for Peter who's called to, to catch men, it isn't about our clever, crafty words or our charismatic personality or the way that we conduct ourselves that is going to make a difference in someone giving their life to the Lord when someone comes into the net. In fact, the way that we are sent as fishers of men makes no sense at all. It's like launching out into the deep and letting down your nets in the middle of the day. It, it should never work that we simply present Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who bled out and died on a cross, and that by faith in his name, there is forgiveness of sins. And to set that forward in someone's ears, the conventional mind would say, well, what good is that going to do to make someone want to change their whole entire life? Do you know why it makes someone want to change their whole entire life? Because God makes it want, make them want to change their whole life. That's what God anoints. It's the power of the cross. Do you understand? It doesn't make any sense. And so for Peter, he needed to learn this lesson. That it isn't the way the world says people are influenced. It isn't the way society sets forth that people are persuaded through advertising and marketing <coughs> and pulling the emotional strings of the soul and really winning over a crowd through your presentation or through your lights or your smoke screen or, you know, the, the whatever. None of that makes any difference at all. What makes a difference is this. The blood of Christ that was poured out when he hung upon a cross and died. That's the message that God's going to use to bring in a multitude of people. And Peter needed to learn that lesson. But for you and I, 
there's, there's another lesson attached to it. For Peter, who would become a fisher of men, and that certainly does apply to every one of us who are called to preach. Every one of us are called to preach. And God's put you where he's put you so that you can preach. And he's given you a very simple message and a very simple promise that it's going to work. But here's, here's something that you need to understand. Is that whatever it is that God's got you doing right now with the majority of your time, and that could be your career or it could be something that he's got you doing outside of your career, uh, something with your family, whatever it is, he is using that physical thing that you're doing to prepare you in some way spiritually for what he has for you in your future. And you see that happen from Genesis to Revelation. You know, I look at Joseph, the son of Jacob. He was in the palace, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the field with his father, right? And then he was immediately put into a pit, into a prison. I'm sorry, a slave, uh, you know, uh, an estate. He was in Potiphar's house. And I can imagine what it was like for him to be a slave after going from being the favored son to being a slave. But God had something for him to learn there. He had to learn the slave mentality. He had to learn how to deal with people. He had to learn how to run a household and run a business in a private sector type situation. He had to know how, he had to, know how to do that. Then God had him in a prison, falsely accused. And you think, well, God, what could you possibly be doing? Why would I have to be in this situation, this horrible situation? Well, he had to learn how to administrate, and he had to learn how to run a government-funded organization. And he had to learn the mind of a criminal and what it was like, what kind of people that he was dealing with in there. He had to learn all this. You know why? Because God was going to make him the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. And he was going to set him over the largest fortune that the world had at that time, seven years' worth of food when there was a worldwide famine. And he was going to have to know how to discern people's lies. He was going to have to understand their mentality and where they were coming from. He would have to distinguish between a genuine need and a false need. He would have to know a lot of things. And God was preparing him for that position as a slave and as a prisoner. The things that he did along the way were preparing him for what was coming in the future. It was mundane. It was earthly. It was menial. It was necessary. And had he missed the lesson, he wouldn't have been prepared for the position God was preparing him for. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years. Why? Because Moses would shepherd the people of God for 40 years in the wilderness. And God was using that experience on the backside of the desert for 40 years to prepare him to be able to lead the people of God for 40 years on the backside of the desert. God doesn't like to send people that are unprepared. God called David from following after the sheep to lead and tend the flock of his own people, the people of God in Israel. Matthew, the tax collector, was sitting at the receipt of custom, a careful record keeper, one that could compare columns and make things reconcile, and God would then later use Matthew to pen the gospel that would attach the Old Testament to the New Testament. That which was mundane and boring in the world, God used the skills that were given to him there to do what he had for him in the future. And it goes on and on. You could look at every single person in the Bible that God used greatly. He prepared them in the everyday things that they did to give them a custom-tailored calling for what he had prepared them to do. And so what's the point? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this. It says that we are his workmanship and we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has before ordained 
that we should walk in them. He's already planned out what he wants to do with our lives in his greater purpose in our kingdom. And he's using the things that we're going through today to prepare us for that time. And one of the things that we need to learn along the way is that we need to listen to him because he's smarter than we are. If we grow accustomed to self-reliance, that is not leaning upon the Lord and waiting on his direction and his counsel, if we grow accustomed to self-reliance in the things that we're doing now, then that will be the mentality that we carry into whatever he has for us in our future. But conversely, if we learn to depend upon the Lord now and look to him now for the things that we're doing, no matter what that is, then that's going to be the way that we live our lives forever and we'll see the maximum fruit. And so a supernatural life requires a supernatural dependence and it requires obedience to a supernatural word. And so Jesus, at the onset and the outset of calling these men to follow him full time, sets forth this understanding to them that he knows what he's doing and that he's trustworthy and that they should follow everything that he says and walk in perfect obedience uh, to it because he's in control of all things. Amen.